Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Soldiers of Cinema podcast. I am your usual host, Colin McFader, along with my lovely co-host, Clark Coffey. Hey, hey, How's hey, so going? wait a minute. So you're usual, and I'm lovely. Is that what, well, it, that's the titles that you've I mean, given you us? You are the... a little bit extraordinary, so <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm extraordinary, okay, that's, I mean, you're, I I'm wouldn't the, I'm the norm. <laughs> you're, you're, you're more than just y- usual, right, or regular. I mean, I would consider you exceptional as well, but anyway. Well, we've got to be humble. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but today we are doing a movie that I honestly had not thought about for a very long time, um, which was your choice, Carrie. Yes. Um, 1976, not the 2013 remake, of course. The oh, absolutely. The 1976 original. Yep. Um, and uh, Brian De Palma, who I think yep. both of us are big fans of. Um, yeah. Even though he's kind of, you know, squared away from the lime, limelight a little bit recently. Uh, a little bit. Um, and it's, it's a shame. Yeah. In the 2000s, yeah. he has, you know, been relegated to kind of Euro films, uh, mm-hmm. you know, small budget budgets and uh not a lot of you know publicity or exposure but uh but yeah i mean i think that uh he's one of my favorite filmmakers mm-hmm. uh, but even i he kind of falls off my radar even and i have to kind yeah. of you know remind myself like hey wait a minute oh hold on man this guy has got one hell of a filmography mm-hmm. and uh I, I, you know and it was tough to pick the film you know i because uh, there's a lot of things that i could have picked and I was kind of, you know, uh, trying to figure out what to pick. And, you know, of course, like right off the bat, 1981's Blowout came to mind first. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. uh, that that's, you know, I consider that probably the pinnacle. Uh, it's definitely a masterpiece. I kind of consider that. It's to be, fantastic. Yeah. It's a fantastic film. And I thought, well, uh, maybe that's, you know, I don't know. Is that a little too obvious, though? Um, has that been covered, you know, so many times that it's, it, it might be kind of dimin- a situation of diminishing returns here, yeah. uh, that I thought for maybe a second casualties of war. Uh, and I actually think that's a, a pretty amazing film as well. Uh, I thought for a second Scarface uh, and clearly Scarface is, is probably his most commercially, uh, in today's day and age, I mean, it has gone on to have such a life of its own. It's yeah, like, it's, it's got it's, its own pop culture thing. It's, yeah. it's 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 its own huge pop culture thing. But I thought, you know, it might be interesting to revisit that, try to like scrape away all that kind of pulp culture, pop culture artif- artifice, mm-hmm. and and really kind of revisit the film itself again. But then I but then I landed on this, and I think a big part of that is because you know this film was released in '76. I was born in '76. Uh, I saw this film when I was very young because it was a very commercially successful film. It played, you know, on TV uh, and, you know, everywhere when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I, I saw the film when I was young and it, it was just really impactful uh, for a couple different reasons, um, which we're going to kind of get into. But um, yeah. yeah, so I thought, hey, what the hell, Carrie? Plus, I love horror films, which I feel like this film is barely a horror film. It's it's only in the you know the final thirty minutes that I think it earns that horror film genre title yeah title, um, yeah. but but uh, but it is definitely I mean it's very much feels like a genre film and I love genre films I love yeah. exploitation and well, I think I, that's, I think it's interesting too because it's sort of much in the way that again and we'll get into this in a lot greater detail but yeah. like much in the way that Hitchcock movies aren't. You know, most, I would say about even Hitchcock's scariest movies are probably 80% drama, more so than scares or suspense or thrills or anything like that. Right. And De Palma, who very much is clearly, clearly heavily inspired by, uh, as as most of that, that group of filmmakers were, um, by Hitchcock, yeah, Yeah. that, that you almost get a similar 
kind of structure of movie here where it's like a lot of it is about character and development well, of building the building know, exactly building, this this tension building. yeah um which i think is brilliantly done here um again i you know i hadn't seen this movie since i was in grade seven i think the first yeah. time grade seven or grade eight was the first it's time it's been I've forever it. for me too yeah i yeah. haven't seen the which movie. was I... last year yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> um i love but it no i always remember my so my dad would have been 21 when this came out i think yeah yeah and um he always talked about it when i was a kid like it was always one of those movies that he would always mention psycho which i'd, I'd seen when i was very young yeah because um, my dad was a huge hitchcock fan yeah and um or is um but he um always talked about this movie having been one where it was like him and his brother were watching it and the ending scared them so much that they ran out of the room and like you know oh, jumped you've got over to, the couch and you've got to watch so it i remember then. Yeah, I remember thinking like me and my friend um, Evan, who I'm still really good friends with, who's you know works with me on films today. Shout out to um, Evan. Yeah, hey Evan. <laughs> he, um, we just decided one day to like watch it in his basement after school, mm-hmm. and we did. And um, I remember now, the time now, thinking you... it was it was what? dated, but it was like not a negative aspect of it. Like I was like, this is a very '70s movie, but yeah. I really was j- kind of like jiving with it. Like I liked it. Well, the cinematography and... is very, and we'll talk about this a little bit yeah. too. But yeah. that you know, that the usage of the pro mist and the you know, oh god, yeah, <laughs> and and the zooms. I mean, there's definitely things that that bring you into the '70s world. But um, I'm curious then. So you know, the first time I saw the film was certainly it was on television. It was some kind of broadcast, and it could have been you know cable or or well. It could have been cable or some kind of broadcast. It was almost certainly uh, edited uh, for mm-hmm. content for broadcast. What, how, how did you first see it? Was this VHS? Was I trying to think that they... Because you're young, so it could have it been It would have either or... been... I mean, when we when I was young, like when I was still kind of in my youth, it was VHS was kind of the dominant thing. Yeah. Um, probably until, I mean, you know, until I was about in middle school or maybe a little late elementary um well because you said seventh grade so I'm yeah so so i think been. i think we might have watched this on on vhs though i don't i don't think it was like at least we didn't have the dvd yeah. um so yeah four by Wonderful. three um you know you're you're sitting there with the scratchy <laughs> yeah. audio because it was probably a tape that had been worn down to uh, and you know, god knows where and you've yep, got exactly yeah. um yeah. but no I, I i mean again just as an aside, it's always so funny to think back to watching things like that in that format because it didn't seem poor quality at all, at least when I was Well, young. it's what you had. Yeah. Like it, it was, was, I remember thinking that it was amazing. It was like, you know, well, yeah, like, it was so like clear. you were so thrilled just to be able to watch a film at home. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who cares? You know, I mean, yeah, nobody knew anything else. I didn't know anything different. I mean, except, of course, when you went to the theater. You had yes, yeah. you had widescreen aspect ratios, but of course at home everything was four three. Well, that was what made the theater special, right? That's what made it special. Um, and, and and I mean, look, I had black. I had a black and white TV until I was you know twelve. Hey, or I 13. had yeah. I had a my uh, I had a black <laughs> and white TV for a while too, but I think that was more just because it was so old. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, so so yeah. I mean, I I remember thinking yeah, especially like if um, you know, when I would go rent a VHS tape, right and. Uh, you know, you could kind of tell, right, if you got a tape that was new versus if you got a tape mm-hmm. that had been watched, yeah. you know, a thousand times or, you know, or 10,000 times. And, you know, the 
uh, you'd, you'd, I'd be so excited. I was like, oh, I can tell it's new, you know, and I'd pop it in and have, it, it, you'd be like, oh, wow, it's so crisp. I mean, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. the, the picture quality is so great. You know, you remember how uh, on older tapes it would start to warp? Oh, the, it, would, the it would warp. Yeah. Yeah. And, or it would, it would, there would be one it, slice of the screen that would be like slightly it, left or something. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't track. Yeah. There was something off with tracking or who mm-hmm. knows what, or would start to lose its, you know, demagnetize over time and or the whatever. Staticky sound. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 Which but is, uh, but I, but again, it's just, it's funny to, you know that that was that that before this would have been the only way that i'd seen this movie um, yeah and i you know i i i liked it a lot then it just what's funny is that when i say that it's a movie that um that i hadn't thought about in a long time it's not necessarily that i you know i'd forgotten about it but rather that i just it's a movie that i watched and it was kind of in like the repertoire of movies that i felt like i needed to watch and then i did it and then just kind of was yeah. like cool and then moved on from it and then when you had recommended it and I was like, that's an interesting one because <laughs> I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how I was going to you know, respond because it had been so long since I'd seen it. Well, I didn't um, know either. And cause I hadn't seen it since I was very young too. So it's been mm-hmm. a long time. And, uh, I do have to say though, you know, part of why I picked it, why it was at the top of my mind was that I was kind of going on a little bit of a De Palma bender. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I had De Palma on the brain uh criterion streaming has got a handful of his films they've got murder oh, nice. a la mode nice. they've got uh sisters they've got um body double uh and they've got blowout so i've been taking advantage of uh of criterion their streaming service and uh, they are not a paid sponsor but i do have to say that i highly recommend criterion streaming service by the way i'm not sure if they have it in canada but they've got it out down yep. here in yep, the states do. it's i mean and i it's like dirt cheap too i want to say it's like maybe six bucks or nine bucks or something a month. I mean, Mm -hmm. they have commentary tracks, they have extras, featurettes, you know, on a lot of their films, just as they would on their physical media releases. I mean, it's, it's outstanding anyway. So I was kind of on a De Palma bender and uh, it just revisit some of his films I'd never seen. uh, Some of his films I hadn't seen in a long time. And uh, I was kind of really grooving on De Palma. And uh, so that's what kind of had this top of mind. So yeah. let's, let's talk a little bit about context of the film. Mm-hmm. I think this mm-hmm. is, a, I mean, Brian De Palma is a really interesting filmmaker uh, to me. And a part of that interest is kind of, you know, his, uh, you know, the, the era in which he, he came to making films and his, you know, he's kind of considered a part of the, you know, the movie brat uh, yeah, you know, yeah, pe- this this huge line of you know those those new Hollywood big, filmmakers, he- heavy hitters, Spielberg, right? Lucas, Scorsese, Coppola, Schrader, Paul Schrader, Milius, yeah. and some of them, of course, uh, Spielberg, Lucas, uh, and well, it's Scorsese and Coppola. I mean, some of the most successful filmmakers who have ever lived. You know, you look at you look at Spielberg and Lucas, you've got some of the most commercially successful filmmakers ever. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's it's between the two of them and maybe it's Spielberg. But I mean, we're talking combined box offices that are just, you know, astronomical. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. insane. In the billions. I think maybe maybe only maybe only Cameron. I don't know if Cameron is ahead of Spielberg or I think Spielberg's ahead just because of volume. Just Um, just sheer volume. He's been making films since the 70s. So. But, uh, you know, I mean, that's that's a pretty wild group of filmmakers to be a part of. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they were all friends. I mean, they that's were the all thing. friends. They, were, they hung and, out. I mean, and, yeah, Carrie was actually cast right alongside, you know, Lucas was casting uh, Star Wars and De Palma was right there in the sessions and they were kind of cross casting their films, you know, uh, 
it's it's just like uh, it's kind of mind-blowing i can only imagine i mean i've always been intrigued by de palma because it's you know he he just took a different track and i think mm-hmm. it's it's conscious you know it's not like you know he has the skill he has the talent he has i mean there is you know, there isn't anything inherently that would, you know, it's just his choice. I think his choice of subject matter, his choice of execution, uh, and I'm appreciative of it. I mean, well, I've always weirdly thought that Cronenberg and De Palma were similar, Um, hmm. that that David Cronenberg was sort of a similar director in that he almost refused the, the, the larger window of kind of like big budget Hollywood for something a little bit more I guess just kind of under the radar in a well, weird way. I, I mean, I, I think personal. I think I I would say maybe a little, especially with Cronenberg, more. I think personal. I think exploitive. I think mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. a, a, a quote a bad when people when people describe De Palma and they're trying to be derogatory, they call him trashy. Mm-hmm. I think the same things that, that that you know that people some people call trashy in De Palma. I, I find to be interesting. I mean, I love. Uh, exploitation films i love b films Mm -hmm. i love genre films i grew up on them i mean it's like you know i've already talked about how i would sneak peeks when my parents would have you know company over viewing parties when i was a little kid and they would rent you know the the cheesiest most genre pictures possible and and uh and i would you know watch them like hiding in the back of the house like you know reflected in a mirror so they couldn't see me but i could see the screen kind of thing yeah so i mean i have a strong affinity for these kind of films and and I think that De Palma, uh, it, you know, he takes those. It's almost like I feel like Quentin Tarantino in a certain sense. You know, Quentin's a big B movie exploitation movie genre movie fan, and he takes those those aspects of those films and turns them into high art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they're, and you know, they've got so much character. And I feel like De Palma um, could be. Yeah. you could say the same thing about. De Palma. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, I actually referenced De Palma recently when I was teaching a film class to you know high school kids these days and i sort of said that i was comparing kind of older you know especially with the movie brats like scorsese and them yeah. um with kind of more contemporary filmmakers and more specifically the, the marvel movies and i was sort of said that mm. like you know because a lot of people that age love the marvel movies and so i sort of said sure that's totally cool you can you know like what you want and if you get enjoyment out of something that's that's great yeah um but i think that you kind of have to consciously notice that when you watch a De Palma movie or or Scorsese or or any of them, you immediately know that you're watching a De Palma movie just just by the way the camera moves and the mm. way that that the the like just the, the look and the feel of everything it just mm-hmm. kind of exudes these people's personalities just on the screen. Yeah. And there's kind of this weird thing where there there are some directors today surely that are very much still like that. Um, but I think it's it's a shame that on a on a large grand scale that there's this development of film that's come to the forefront especially of box offices which is that you know you shouldn't take notice to a director that as a director you're there to manage a set and that's it and oh yeah just you know so if we're going to shoot a big battle scene we just need to set up six cameras and get it and that's well that's, that's on that. purpose and then i mean that's on purpose because they yeah. want they want the ip to lead the way now not to yes. get like too yeah. down and you know a path that's not about De Palma and this film but i mean that's on purpose that's yeah they mm-hmm. want the ip to lead the way they don't even want the actors representing those ips to necessarily be the reason that you go in that's why costumes are so fantastic and cgi mm-hmm. is so fantastic in their mind because 
it's not even the actor that you care about. It's the IP. It's Captain yeah. America. Yeah, yeah. It's the Hulk. And anybody can play it. And anybody can direct it. And frankly, anybody can write it. Because yeah. it's the concept that you care about. Uh, well, I don't it, think Scorsese was wrong when he described them as amusement parks. I, um, and but, there's nothing wrong with that either. I yeah, think a lot of people just got a, their... I think people got, thought they got it was their like undies an insult, in a bind. Yeah, they just, got their yeah. undies in a bind because they're like, wait a minute, I, I like those films. Are you saying that I'm a lesser person because I like these films? I, no, he's just saying that cinema, like what he thinks is cinema, and I, and I agree with him too, mm-hmm. like what I would call cinema is not a Marvel movie. But it is what De Palma makes. Mm-hmm. And what is the difference? Well, I think a big part of it is what we're discussing right here, which is that one of them is, uh, you know, the cinema is stems forth from, is an art, authentic, artistic expression from a director. It's authored, yeah. It's, it's authored. It's an authored It's film. curated, yeah. and it is meticulous. And every image is there on purpose because you know somebody put it there and that's the director ultimately obviously it's a collaborative art form and i'm not don't mean to diminish that it takes hundreds of people or thousands of people sometimes to make a film like this but ultimately the director is at the helm it's a director's medium mm-hmm. it's like television is a writer's medium but Marvel i think films you know even to are not that yeah they are and, not to, that. and to to even more specify with De Palma, it's like the split diopter in this movie there's a lot of split diopter shots which i love a lot of I people do actually don't don't like the split diopter that much because they think it kind of is too in your face. But I, I love it. Yeah, the some Palma people think it's does. obtusive. It draws attention to itself, that it's um, not seamless, that, you know. And I yeah. love it, too. I love well, it, let's, too. Let's talk a bit about, let's, then, yeah. the, the cinematography of this film. Well, um, real quick, you know, before we do, let me, I want to, there's, real quick, not to, not to oh, like yeah, cut sure. you off, because yeah. I want to get to that, too, because there's some really interesting stuff in the cinematography. But just while we're kind of talking a little bit about context, about De Palma being a part of this movie Bratz group, and, you know, and, and we've hinted at it a little bit. I think you brought up Hitchcock. I think it's really important to mention that this film and much of De Palma's work is extreme, well, or maybe all, frankly, of his mm-hmm. work is heavily influenced by Hitchcock. Oh, and you can, more so than anybody else. I uh, think probably group. more so than yeah. any other major filmmaker I'm familiar with. Obviously, yeah. Hitchcock has inspired countless filmmakers, but as far as people of a certain stature... I can't think of anybody who's been more in- influenced than mm-hmm. Palma, and and I and that's a great thing if you love Hitchcock, and I'm a big fan of Hitchcock, so <laughs> you know uh, yeah. that's that oh, fits you know, for yeah, me. me. I mean, but he's even made almost straight up, you know, recreations. I mean, for example, I told you I just watched Body Double. I mean, that's yeah, which is it, yeah. it, it's practically a remake of Vertigo in some senses. Certainly an homage. I mean, which is what I think is so interesting about De Palma is that his style there isn't. It's not just the visual cues of of Hitchcock right. the the visual language of him and it's, the score. it's the storytelling too it's the storytelling that, that i think that that's what separates de palma from so many other people that you know Sp- spielberg is someone that is often in that group cited as being similar to hitchcock as well which i agree with there's certainly elements of spielberg's filmmaking that that definitely he will even say you know i i got that from hitchcock right um but I always think it's funny that people kind of leave De Palma out in those conversations because I think De Palma ten times more than than Spielberg yeah. is 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 a, a Hitchcock protege 
to well, say. Well, and the thing is, is that he can back it up too. You know, yeah. so it's it's one thing to to say that you know you're influenced by Hitchcock or whatever X Y Z filmmaker, and it's one thing to say that this is an homage, or it's one thing to kind of steal. But look, you've got to have the 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 skill to back that up, and and I think De Palma really does. I mean, and this film that we're you know discussing here, or we'll eventually discuss <laughs> as we kind of lay down some general context, but. Mm. Um, but I mean, talk about, you know, um, this film is a masterclass in anticipation, in suspense. Oh, God, yeah. In yeah. building suspense, in and and bringing the audience so actively uh, into the process of imagining what's about to happen, what we know is going to happen, anticipating mm-hmm. what's going to happen. I mean, this whole movie, from the first scene, the setup, where we have the girls tormenting Carrie uh, in the locker room, Everything that happens after that, up until the the bucket of blood scene, uh, and that and its immediate after math at the prom. I mean, the entire movie is building up. We know what's about to happen. Every well, I think you described it sort of. It's like a train wreck in slow motion. Like yeah. it's like you're just you you know that all of the that all the pieces are set, and you're just waiting for them to collide. And he sets it up so beautifully, yeah. and then. And even- I, I, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, even the mechanics of it, and maybe this is a good segue to go into cinematography if you're ready to go there, but just, mm-hmm. you know, everything is motivated. And, you know, and there are some complex uh, camera moves here. There's some really interesting, and you talked about diopter shots, but they're there for a reason. There's mm-hmm. this wonderful, I think, one of the maybe the best one or the, the, the diopter shot that really stood out to me. It's especially beautiful was the scene where uh tommy is having his plagiarized poetry read in class mm-hmm. and we have tommy in focus on one half of the screen and he's sitting in front of carrie and she is a few seats back and we see her in focus as well and the teacher is reading this poem and the teacher asks for critique from the class and carrie uh, says that it's beautiful and then the teacher goes on to ridicule her for you mm-hmm. know saying well, that's one hell of a critique you know beautiful is not a critique what are you talking about but you can see there's so many things that we're doing here we can see carrie's reaction to the ridicule uh we see tommy actually genuinely reacting to her saying something nice about yeah. him and that sets up something that's really important that you know tommy actually uh, is a, is like a decent human being, it seems like, and he actually does really genuinely care for Carrie, and he's ha- actually is having a good time he's at prom. Got the empathy for her, yeah, and and then of course we see that he's he's nonetheless a victim. That doesn't save him. Uh, he's actually knocked out by the bucket, so his his own friends take him out, and mm-hmm. that's an interesting kind of you know some dramatic irony there. But but it's just one example. I mean, it, it's a great shot, but it's not just there to be there. Well, and then there's the other part where she comes out of the um, the prayer closet thing while her mother's <sighs> sewing, and it's like you just the mother never looks back at her; she yeah. just keeps sewing and is doing this. It's and again, I think I think so one of the things that is so great about the split di- diopter is that I, you know, as a director, I love to play things out in kind of longer, uninterrupted takes, not necessarily yeah. oneers per se, but just allowing actors to, to perform work. in yeah. in a master, and the split diopter. It's a great tool for that because if you have two actors who are separated by a lot of space and one of them is much closer to the camera, 
And then the other, you kind of have two options, and or three, really. You can either stop down the lens a ton, so you have a really deep depth of field, which means you need way more light. Yeah. Or you can rack focus back and forth between the two, which can be difficult if they're overlapping dialogue or just distracting and it's, generally. And it means something different yeah. to do that. It, exactly. It, it, it feels different. You're pushing, yeah. pulling, pushing, pulling. Um, you, you're still not yeah. splitting focus simultaneously it's a jumping back and forth yeah. of focus yeah which is why i've always thought the idea that the split diopter is distracting or something like that is weird because to me it's the least distracting way to do that because you're you're letting it you're just letting it sit you don't really have to do you know any yeah. movement of camera afterwards and you can let the actors do their thing which i think is really um you know i'm assuming that's one of the reasons De Palma probably likes it a lot as well and and just you know as we get into the visuals of the movie specifically i also want to say that um while De Palma is incredibly influenced by by Hitchcock and very clearly um so he has so much of his own flavor in mm-hmm. his movies as well like that that it's it's not that De Palma is taking from Hitchcock's style and using it everywhere it's just rather that Hitchcock um or rather De Palma seems almost like a natural evolution of Hitchcock's ah, work yeah um in that he brought a lot of his own tendencies and you know voice to his filmmaking Absolutely. while looking back at someone like Hitchcock and going okay how does he like why were Hitchcock's movies so effective and how did he do that and I think again which really makes me love De Palma and which is why I've always really liked him um is is this idea that he does yeah he just kind of analyzes that stuff and goes like why does that work what makes that tick yeah and you know how can I play the audience up like that in the same way that Hitchcock did so I think it's it's really remarkable how effective of a filmmaker he is in that way yeah um, yeah and I and then and, and I was just going to say, I mean, yeah. I, I've heard, obviously, I don't know from firsthand experience, it would be wonderful to work on set with De Palma, but I've, I've mm-hmm. not gotten to do that. But uh, I mean, it's by all accounts, it sounds like he is extremely meticulous that he, you know, now, and this is uh, antithesis to, you know, Herzog, which is kind of the, the roots of this podcast. We, mm-hmm. you know, and our origination was that we were discussing Werner Herzog uh, specifically and exclusively. Of course, we've moved away from that now. And we talk about all different kinds of filmmakers and films, but yeah, uh, but apparently De Palma storyboards like his entire films and interesting, extremely interesting, yeah. meticulous and detail oriented towards you know, and you have to be. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that you know he's he's clearly extremely focused on the visual, but it, what what I love to see though is that not to the detriment of performance, mm-hmm. uh, which which can happen a lot of times to a director who is more technically inclined, who's more camera focused, um, who's more visual specific. Uh, a lot of times performances can falter, uh, but but they don't here, which is great. Um, but yeah, I I just you know you're right. I think when you said that it's like an evolution. Uh, I think we're, we're all, look, we're all inspired by, you know, it's like we, we saw somebody's work when we were a kid that kind of made us say, hey, I want to do that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, so so I think uh, everybody, uh, hopefully you go through a process where you take your inspiration and you add to it and you become your own thing. But that kind of core of what you were inspired by is always going to be present in your work. And yeah, nothing wrong with that at all. No, I think I think you should engage with that rather than trying to. And I think De Palma does that beautifully. Um, yeah. Instead of trying to like, you know, splinter himself from it and go, oh, I can't do that because it's not wholly original. But you know. Yeah. yeah well, I, I, I mean, so speaking I just of holy, that, yeah. yeah. Speaking of wholly original, I mean, you know, real quickly, I want to also toss in because I think this is kind of an interesting little tidbit. So I think most people probably know, but uh, 
this this film is uh, an adaptation of a Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I did not know this, but it actually was the first novel Stephen King had published. Now, it wasn't the first one he wrote. It was the fourth book that he had written, but it was the first to be published. And I think that's kind of interesting because nowadays, of course, we know Steve. I mean, Stephen King is Stephen King. It's like when he writes a book, I mean, it's Stephen King. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. made his own darn genre practically. But this is the first book he had ever had published. So he was just some guy with a book. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting that that this was this the story that De Palma chose to tell. I think that's I I just think that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, clearly, it was a good choice, and clearly Stephen King has gone on to be a profound talent. Uh, yes, but yeah. I just think and, that's and an again, interesting like you said, a genre unto his own. Yeah. yeah, it's just an interesting tidbit. All right, so with that, yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about. I mean, the cinematography. It's you know there were two two cinematographers on this film. I yeah. didn't. I did not know that either. Me neither. And, yeah, only one is credited. Only one um, is credited, and I'm not terribly familiar with either of the two mm-hmm. of these DPs. But we we start off with, and I hope I don't butcher this name, Isidore Mankowski. And apparently there was some kind of conflict, probably a personality issue between De Palma and him. But he shot the kind of the first half of the film. Mm-hmm. And then we've got uh, Mario Tosi, who shot this latter half of the film. Uh, and I think he's the credited cinematographer. Yes, I'm, Mario Tosi, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I'm correct. So uh, I'm, I, I don't know a ton about those two. Uh, Mario doesn't seem to have shot a lot of things, at least mm-hmm. that was released here in North America. Uh, I know he's Italian, and so maybe he has some other work that was more regional or local that had mm-hmm. been released. But I know that De Palma, I mean, again, we go back to he's so visually focused and so hands-on and does, I, I mean, he's designing shots. So uh, I feel like I'd go out on a limb and maybe take a guess here that De Palma is more than you know like more than 50 percent responsible for the look of the film i'm gonna guess yeah. that De palma did probably 80 percent of what we see at least i mean which is likely why you can't see a difference between the two you know there's exactly. no jump of suddenly this feels like it's shot by somebody else right um yeah, and no matter even, who... even down to the techniques i mean again we i think you made the joke earlier but that this movie has you know well, I described in our notes as like a super promist um, because <laughs> for anyone who doesn't point. know, a, a promist filter is just a, it's like a kind of a, a fogged piece of glass, very lightly fogged piece of glass that you'd put in front in a, in a matte box or just sometimes there's screw ons in front of a camera lens. And it basically blooms all of the highlights and softens out highlights and makes them yeah. look kind of nice. Um, I have a one eighth promist that I even think is too much sometimes this seems like it was like a one over two or something like this. Yeah. This seems it's intense. Or, yeah, it's it's there's a lot of bloom. Um, not something that I would necessarily do on something that I was making, but I actually don't dislike the look of this movie at all. I think that it actually looks um, it fits in. Honestly, what's funny is that it, it's like that look of that very bloomed um, soft kind of look resonates a lot with the uh the music which we'll get into later yeah. that like soft flute it kind yeah. of matches that look really well um but yeah so there's a lot of like very soft um not necessarily soft because of necessarily the stock or the film grain or anything like that but rather just because it's it's very bloomy the highlights um shot on uh 
Eastman 100T 5254, which is, of course, another film that's not made these days, but it has a very distinct yeah. look. The reds are super um, saturated. And which, is, uh, of course, is perfect for the blood. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, yeah, it's beautiful. And, you know, I did, I, I just, because I, I hadn't looked and I, I, I wasn't for sure. But, yeah, so that's, that is sadly a discontinued stock. Of course, there are only a few film stocks that have survived to this mm-hmm. point. And even then, they're, they're all contemporary stocks. They're too. all contemporary different stocks, yeah. yeah. But um, but yeah, I, I, and I think the Bloom works well, too. I think the Pro Mist works. I think that, you know, especially this is such a surreal film. This is mm-hmm. almost like a fairy tale. You know, it is, it's such a little self-contained. It's very small. It's very dependent sense. on trajectory of the plot. Like it's it's not yeah. necessarily plot heavy, but, no. but in terms of every scene is forwarding the the events in some way, which I, I think is, you know, again, a really it, it makes this movie really tight and really neat and compact. Yeah. Um, but also doesn't I don't know about you, I don't I don't think it ever feels rushed or that it's no. like beating you over the head. Um I, yeah. I mean, I appreciate the amount of time that, that De Palma takes uh, in the first hour building up to the prom scene. I mean, mm-hmm. we see all this, you know, we see, obviously, we immediately, our hearts go out to Carrie. We have this really, I mean, frankly, disturbing scene with her being bullied so horrifically mm-hmm. um, about something that uh, is, of course, you know, totally normal and no reason to bully. But yeah, my goodness, the the fact that she was unprepared for her first period and didn't even really know what was going on because her mother hadn't told her anything about it, had kept mm-hmm. her so cloistered off from the world. I mean, I can only fathom how how devastating it would be to go through that. I mean, I was bullied for a few years in like uh, junior high school uh, until I got into high school. And thankfully, thankfully that changed. But my God, it was like gym class was like your worst nightmare. If if mm-hmm. people, if you were like being bullied, dude, gym class was like, it's the last place in the world you want to be is in a locker room full of kids who are picking on you. It's the, mm-hmm. I, I never went through anything of the magnitude that she goes through, her character goes through in this film, but oh my gosh. So my heart goes out to her immediately. Yeah. Have instant yeah. sympathy and then the entire film we see just the the mechanizations the wheels the gears turning everything building to what's going to happen to her and we know exactly what's going to happen to her i mean it's it's clear as day it's not like there's some mystery. it's almost like a prophecy yeah it's a, we know that, that she is going to be tormented in a horrific public way at prom and you know it from the the instant that the the other kids in class uh, who are who are uh, sentenced to detention um, because of what they did to Carrie, and of course they blame her, and so they feel like they need to get back at her, mm-hmm. uh, and so they devise this scheme. one in particular too. It's the one girl, um, Nancy Allen. Nancy, yeah, played yes, uh, the the character played by Nancy Allen. So, it, but but I mean to go back to some cinematography. I mean, uh, one of the other things so you talked about this feeling like a, a really feeling like a film from the seventies. I you know I think the pro mist kind of gives it a sense of the 70s a little bit to me. Not that Pro Mist was like a thing that every film used in the 70s, but I think in conjunction with, there's a lot of zooms. Oh, yeah. Um, and I love the zooms in this movie. I, 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 look, and you and I've talked about this, you know, and it's, I don't know why, but especially when I was first kind of starting out, and, you know, I would, <laughs> I remember, you know, I first few sets that I would get on, and I'm still learning the ropes and I'm kind of figuring out what's what. And I'm like over there talking to the DP or something. And, I, you know, I'm used to using Zoom 
lenses on my still cameras right before mm -hmm. i ever got it you know had the, and and uh on camcorders you know not professional cameras not yeah like a cameras. sony handy camera but when i was yeah. a kid i had camcorders and of course they mm -hmm. all had zooms they all yeah. had zooms and so i'm like oh this is you know i'm used to shoot like all my little home videos and everything i'd shot with a zoom my whole life and you know i remember just saying the word on a set you know would just like send a, you know a dp off on, on a rant that would last 30 minutes about how you know i wouldn't touch a zoom lens with a you know 10 foot pole like how dare you even you know i only shoot with primes primes which primes, i think primes. is so funny and i'm it's like, like they're compensating for something <laughs> I, and I, yeah yeah no kidding huh and i'm like uh like i don't get it i don't get it you know i think I think zooms are not only are, do they have a huge logistical advantage. Uh, obviously, there's drawbacks. I mean, they're slower and there's other. They're more issues. expensive for they're a good more one. expensive, and so I, I get all that. But my gosh, I mean, it's sad to me that the zoom is not used hardly at all. It's almost yeah. fallen. It's almost fallen from the grammar of filmmaking to this day. But I think zooms are used to great effect. Um, they they do such a wonderful job in these in these shots of. Uh, pointing our attention to specific things they really do a fantastic job of reframing mm -hmm. uh and and it, when you combine that with the really fluid camera movement that we've got here and and um and de palma's like you know really really world-class blocking it's it's world-class blocking i mean it's basically we're editing in camera mm -hmm. and not to take away from paul hirsch the job that he does as an editor especially during the the prom scene with the split screen and oh, all the cuts it's amazing i mean God. it's a, it that's a that's really i mean that's extraordinary work extraordinary mm -hmm. but i just i love that you know uh when you can kind of edit in camera when you can re re you know you can compose new scenes you can move with characters you can follow elements of the story i think mm -hmm. One of the most beautiful combinations of movement and zoom in this film uh, is when we're at the prom and the bucket of blood is placed over her head. And we have this tracking shot where we're like, you know, we're following characters. We're walking through the gym. Then we come to like the side of the stage. We can see the rope going up. We follow it up to the bucket. We, we like we're it's like um, we can see the entire, you know, mechanism of how this is going to take place. What are those little, mm -hmm. like, is it like a, what are the, what are those? Oh, Rue Goldberg machines? Yeah, Rue Goldberg machines. it's yeah. almost like we're kind of the cameras, like, following the the pieces of that, you know? Yeah. And it's like, okay, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. And then, you know, and we come up to the camera, we're on a crane, we come up, and we're at the level of the bucket, and then we see Carrie and Tommy, like, off in the, uh, in the, in the distance, and then we have this beautiful zoom past the bucket right onto them just ties so many different story elements together uh extraordinary shot yeah no i i agree it's it's um again it's it's one of those things where you you like you said you so rarely kind of see it these days yeah. where you're it's like a dance between which i think are some really important elements the zoom the camera movement itself and the movement of the actors and the way yeah. that they all play out together um i think is is really remarkable in very similar to um kind of almost a, the way that paul schrader sorry not paul schrader um, robert altman uh, yeah. um, sort of can compose a lot of scenes like that like he loves to use um like a moving camera to recompose and to almost make scenes seem like they're wonders when they're not and yeah um so i i think that that's uh quite interesting that that de palma does it here um, not surprising if you've seen any other not... De Palma movies, but um, like even up to you know Mission Impossible is is shot 
very similarly uh the first mission impossible which of course De Palma did and is my favorite of the series yeah by um, far but but you get you get a lot of like I like directors like that who have such like an, an auteur status of you know you can tell that no matter what genre they're doing they're they're, they're changing themselves to to fit different well, genres but they're at the same time there's still those little tidbits that are yeah. that are in there well um, and it, and i think the other thing too is you know and especially with uh with this the rise in television that we have now and we've talked about this probably a dozen times throughout these episodes but you know I, we're exposed to such different content now and i think sadly you know another thing that i think separates cinema from tv or you know or from video or from content is that there's really a focus on visual storytelling on the camera having a being a character having a voice being a part of the storytelling and i think true cinema and i think this is an example you know the camera is absolutely vital what it does and how it does it is is just as important uh, a character as any as any other in the film. Yes, yeah. and I think we've just you know be, and you know films ultimately hopefully you have more budget you have especially more time and again it's a director driven medium so you can do these kind of things. Sadly, I think a lot of filmmakers don't mm-hmm. do this because uh, I think we've we've gotten used to TV where it's two shot over the shoulder over the shoulder boom it's just it you know the camera is not doing anything the camera mm-hmm. is just sitting there well and- even even like i think something that people forget so much about and that i think that that schrader plays i keep saying schrader de palma <laughs> you want to talk about schrader you want it yeah. let's- <laughs> maybe we've got to do taxi driver next yeah, but there um, you go. but that that de palma does is um and again when it like very much in line with what you're saying is that is that placement and positioning from camera that that how how far are people from camera there's a lot of shots in this movie where the people delivering dialogue or the people that are the center of attention are actually quite far from camera or sometimes again with these split diopter shots where it's like people are having a conversation looking the same direction direction one of them is a foot from the camera one of them is 50 feet from the camera and you've got these you know even when they're doing the gym exercises outside um, you've got the coach that's standing right at camera and then the, um, the girl, Chris, who's kind of the orchestrator of the prank, right. um, complaining and she's like complaining in the background and they're having this, this conversation while they're so far from each other. And I love it. Um, and playing, I think again, just like the distance from camera can tell you so much, whether yeah. an actor or a character moves towards camera or we move towards them, whether, um, you know, the way, the speed in which they move, it's things like that, that I think so many people just forget about and kind of skim over because it's like, okay, let's set up a camera, um, or, you know, what's even more common these days, let's set up three cameras, capture uh, all the coverage in one shot, uh, yeah. in one take, and, and we've got what we need to, to see what happens in the scene, uh, yeah. and we're moving on. It's not, nobody, Well, and I don't want to see nobody in a, in a literal sense, but very few mainstream um, directors that you would be able to see on a big screen today take the time to go, okay, like, how can I use the relationship between all of these elements, all these moving pieces in a scene to tell a story. Um, I think we talked about this before too, that the idea that like a lot of movies, um, I think the way that you can tell uh, whether or not a, a film is, or a director is doing their job as well as they should be is if you watch a movie on mute. Um, yeah. And while there of course is a like important dialogue in any movie and dialogue is, is important and storytelling audibly is important. Um, I think this this is also a movie that if you watch this on mute, you would still get a gist of what's going on, what the characters oh, are no feeling, question. 
yeah, who's no doing question. what. Yeah. yeah, no yeah. question, 100%. And, and I know, you know, too, from just watching, you know, De Palma interviews, hearing him speak, I mean, it's... It, the, it's, it is such an important part. It's such a huge part of what he focuses on. Um, and I just, I, it's, it's just really wonderful to see. And it's an inspiration to me. And it was, it's something that I definitely strive for in my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I, I feel sadly, I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I feel like, I mean, it's not to say that cameras don't move in other films. I mean, sure they move, but there's just a difference and I, I maybe I, you know, I, I could probably do a better job of articulating it than I am, but like take, you know, like your average Avengers movie or Marvel movie. I mean, the camera's all over place and, and all over the place in those films. It's certainly well, half the time it's virtual too. But, well, That's right. <laughs> and, and you're right. Probably more than half, probably three yeah. quarters of the time. There's not even a camera actually there, but, um, but it's, it's really about movement with purpose and and specifically yes, storytelling yeah. purpose and and i just remember too and this is something that the herzog and de palma definitely do agree on so unlike storyboarding that coverage is uh is a naughty word mm-hmm. you know and i totally agree with this and i know people and i've worked with people who are the exact opposite and it makes me crazy mm-hmm. um and and it's not a way that i ever want to work and you know frankly it's it, that's one of the first things i kind of find out about if if there's a cinematographer i want to work with and they love coverage then it's not a good match yeah. i believe that you go in and you have an extremely specific idea of what you're wanting to do and you're executing that exact specific thing to go in and just shoot, just get a bunch of generic crap. Okay, we're going to get this extra wide and then a wide and then, the, you know, and just we're going to cover it from every different possible angle. And then, okay, we'll have all these options when we get into editing it and then we can just do whatever we want. Mm-hmm. That always turns out crap. I feel like that always turns out crap. Yeah. And so, I think it's actually fun, a personal anecdote um, that I was, when I was shooting on set last week, um, on the shot list, there was one scene that was a, that was all entirely, it was a single shot conversation between three characters at a table. Mm-hmm. And in the shot list, I had written as a secondary shot, get one insert um, shot, just a piece of coverage of one of the actors, just in case they need to cut to it. And we did the scene, I think we did like three or four takes of it in the, the initial setup, that master. And I looked at it and I looked at the, um, my friend Adam, who was my first AD. And I said, we're cutting that. I don't, I don't need the coverage. And he was like, are you sure? Like Mm. you don't want something for safety. And I was like, (laughs) Nope, I don't need it. Like I, I I only put it there just in case I needed it, but I know for a fact that I don't need it because it would completely kill the rhythm of the scene. Um, and I'm not in the business of just taking shots because I'm worried about something, you know, I'm I'm in the business of planning. So um so yeah i just I, th- I just think it's funny that we're talking about all this stuff about coverage and stuff and it was an experience i just had um, yeah. but let's perhaps do you want to get into maybe some some of the performances um, absolutely it's like sissy spacek in this movie who is of course carrie who is a wonderful wonderful actor oh my gosh generally she great? Um, she's yeah. incredible in this movie and how old was she do you know how old she was in this boy she's young i she's yeah. early she 20s. was young in badlands i think she was only she might have been How 16 she, or something yeah, in Badlands. Yeah. She was extremely young in Badlands. We can check that out real quick. But while you're looking that up, I mean, yeah, you know. So Sissy uh, Spacek as Carrie White is amazing. Piper Laurie as her mother, Margaret White, is extraordinary. And, you know, both of them received Academy Award nominations for acting, which was really, I mean, unheard of uh, in a horror movie, uh, horror yeah. genre film, even mm-hmm. to this day. I mean, that's... That's like, wow, you know. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, definitely, but I thought all the performances were good. You know, John Travolta has a little supporting role in here, I think is mm -hmm. great. Uh, Amy Irving, I think this is her very first film. Of course, she would go on to marry Spielberg, mm -hmm. speaking of years, kind yeah. of closely knit. Yeah. Um, but they were all, uh, I thought all the performances were really yeah, fantastic. It was one of the things that I sort of, uh, I'd mentioned beforehand too, when we were, we were discussing the film, which was just that it was like, nobody there's no weak link here no um they honestly all feel like very authentic high schoolers even though they are much yeah, much like, older like, you yeah know, yeah and and i think it works because i think in this sense unlike greece um like john travolta i don't think is supposed to be a high i think he's supposed to be her boyfriend who's older, older boyfriend and, yeah, yeah 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 um because he's never so, in school no yeah and he he just kind of shows up to the thing yeah and, and <laughs> you know um, but he, uh, but but everyone else. I mean, again, despite looking older, um, there's a really real um, relationship between everyone, um, which is kind of rare to find in in like high school drama movies. Which is not, of course, what this is. But there's elements of that. Well, there's in a, yeah. this film, yeah. and I think it's really rare to find situations like that that feel real and i think what makes this movie feel so real is the brutality and the authenticity of the performances and just de palma's direction mm -hmm. so you have carrie of course again in that that opening scene that like horrific bullying that she uh faces um you've just got this very raw feeling of it and all the performances are are incredibly just grounded down to earth they they are doing what they are doing and then when they're in detention and they all start arguing of course there's an element of it that's heightened um because it's a film but it also still feels like you really buy into it or at least yeah. i did i really you know i felt like these were real people um and that the the drama of it made sense it it's authentic it feels um you know genuine which is i think in huge part owing to the fact that these actors were all you know really great and correct me if i'm wrong most of them were pretty much no names at this point um with the exception of sissy spacek who would be in and and of course some of the adult but this actors. was her breakout this uh, was but her this breakout was, yeah badly something that made her big yeah. but the yeah now piper most laurie definitely had her, yeah piper laurie yeah. definitely had a substantial career uh before this film um but uh i mean as a matter of fact well but she came off a long break which is interesting you know, mm -hmm. Piper Laurie, mm -hmm. so her, she hadn't done a film since 61. And the last film she had done was The Hustler. And she had been a, uh, actually wow. nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress in BAFTA, Gold, you know, like New York Film uh, Critics Circle Award. I mean, so she got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, accolade for her role in The Hustler. But that's 1961. So we're fast forwarding now to 76. Wow, so she, did the, she took a Malik break. She took, yeah, yeah, she took a Malik break of fifteen years. So, but she had definitely uh, had experience. But I think she's just fantastic here. I mean, mm -hmm. the and I love the choices that she made. So, you know, I mean, and first and foremost, I mean, she it's a you know she's got to play this really challenging role as a mother to some to like to communicate authentically this this like religious obsessed repressed you know force that mm -hmm. has ground carry into this time i mean this tiny tiny little ball of a human being that you know is, is just so profoundly repressed and mm -hmm. oppressed and reactionary and, and, yeah. oh, and it's just so terrifying and she did such a wonderful job and then in that 
oh my gosh, the final, you know, in, in the kind of the, the epilogue, if you will, kind of almost of after, um, you know, after the prom event where Carrie burns the school down and we have all of this action there. She, Carrie comes back to the house and she comes back and she wants to be embraced by her mother because it's kind of like what you said happened did happen. You said they were going to laugh at me and, and, and I guess you were right. And I, you know, I have nothing. Can you hold me? And oh my, her mother stabs her in the back, literally, yeah. literally stabs her in the back, but you believe it. And it's like, it's hard to pull off, you know, mm -hmm. but you also have some sympathy because you wonder, like, I mean, you get little pieces, right? It's like Carrie's father left the family and the mother has devised a wedlock yeah. devised this like this this idea that that Satan took her husband away. So, I mean, mm -hmm. she herself is uh, is repressed and is just you know self-loathing yeah. self-loathing and we feel that and it and it and so we we have sympathy for her she's not just this two-dimensional or one-dimensional cardboard cutout kind of character right which it could easily have gone into yeah and it yeah. Could well also... the new that the remake is very much that i think julianne moore plays the mother and it's just quite and she's a good actress yeah, julianne moore, yeah. it's not like she's a hack i mean she's a great actress so goes to show it's not easy it's mm -hmm. really not easy so we have sympathy for her she feels like a real character and we've all seen flavors of that in other people or maybe yes. even in ourselves not to that yeah. extreme of course but but all i think it's it's a very relatable kind of feeling in general but then that end where she's crucified by carrie with the, oh God. You know, the, the yeah. telepathically sent cutlery you know uh and she's literally crucified with her arms outstretched and yeah, she, nailed to the, the door frame yeah. and she plays it as an ecstasy yeah as opposed to a pain mm-hmm and it's like she's fulfilling her purpose yeah she, she's fulfilling her martyrdom and uh, and i know from uh watching some bts on this that that was her suggestion to de palma mm -hmm. uh you know hey uh interesting yeah you know instead of just playing this straight like oh i'm in pain what if this were something that actually gave me pleasure and uh god does it work because it's and the, the music in that moment is so great well, when the mothers the, that final confrontation the music is is really it uh, is the cherry well, on top of let's talk scene. about that too a little bit yeah. so well it's there's a, actually an interesting tidbit about the music too that, that you had found out which was that de palma initially wanted um bernard herman who right, he worked right. on with his two previous films and who was scoring taxi driver this time but herman who Passed was away. of course known as the the hitchcock's you know go-to composer who i love I, I i love bernard herman so much but he passed away in the recording sessions not actually in but during right at, yeah um, the recording sessions the final kind of mixing of taxi driver so right. de palma couldn't get him so instead it is um uh pino, pino DiNaggio. DiNaggio, yeah who hasn't done um much other film work you know if you look at his his credits he's not done yeah this was certainly the biggest yeah. that he had done um i think he did i can't remember what that, there was another thing on his list that he'd done that was that was relatively big but this was certainly the the largest movie one of the higher done. profile yeah um and um but no i i actually really like you know it kind of there's only really three kind of pieces of music in this there's the softer flute that kind of goes on during of course the nicer scenes or and yeah. sometimes is played during creepier moments well, as kind, kind of, of a juxtaposition kind of represents a little more of carrie's vulnerability yes yeah yeah um and then there's the actual hit 
when Carrie uses her, you know, telekinesis, which yeah, sounds, it's the exact same chord stab. as the psycho hit, yeah. um, which explains, you know, the, the strings between Herman and, and perhaps De Palma would have wanted Herman to almost recreate that sound uh, as well. Um, and then there's this, there's this, that score when, um, when the mother's dying, which comes mm-hmm. up only a few other times in the movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like this really nice melody that, that sounds really nice, but it's tragic. Like it's, it's yeah. just brooding with this, this tragic sound that I think is, I think personally, you know, I'm not somebody who ever thinks that music should tell somebody what to feel or, um, be on the nose. forefront, but I, I love music and film when it's used really well. And, and I don't even mind it if it's really loud and big and, 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 you know, forward, as long as it's serving a purpose beyond just saying, be sad. Um, And I think that that scene is actually a really perfect example of it. And I think marries into this whole idea of martyrdom from the mother's perspective perfectly. Um, Because you feel that as, as Carrie like covers her ears, as she's kind of doing her last dying breath, you just, there's this, it's not like a horror score in that moment. It's like this really tragic, but, Mm -hmm. but almost grand, almost fulfilling feeling song. And I, I think it's, um, really, really well done. Yeah, yeah, I would agree, and you definitely do get get the that uh, the homage, if you will, or the you know, there's a lot of stylistic similarities in this score between what you could imagine that uh, Bernard Herrmann might have done. Mm-hmm. You could yeah. definitely imagine that this would be something you know that he would have done, kind of along these lines. Yeah, because yeah. Herrmann loves the strings, he loves the flutes, he loves you know, it, it definitely. I can tell that that um, De Palma was really trying to kind of pay homage to him, especially considering he had just passed away. Yeah. Um, and yeah. knowing that, that uh, knowing De Palma had intended to hire yes, him for the film, him. but yeah. you know, was, yeah. was sadly unable to. Wow. Well, uh, I, I think that about covers it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, these films are fun. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Sometimes I'm like, even though, yes, it comes from like, uh, you know, it's like a, it's De Palma's name on it. And it's kind of so it has a bit of a pedigree there. But, so, you know, it's like maybe this is my little attempt to like ease into some more genre <laughs> films. Mm-hmm. So I'll start with I'll start with something that's more acceptable, you know, like a De Palma flick. And then I could kind of maybe next time I'll pick something even a little more, you know, maybe I'll start getting into like something from Carpenter or something. But we'll see. Oh, we'll yeah. See. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but but I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed this one. And it's it's really fun to talk about. And hey, I who knows? Maybe we'll do a, another De Palma film down the road because I mean I think his work really is worth uh, watching and talking about. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, if if I ever have an opportunity to expose some new people to to De Palma, then I'm I'm super excited to do that. So, but uh, anyway, well, we'll be excited for your pick next time. I look forward mm-hmm. to that. And uh, everybody out there who's like stayed along and. And listen to us discuss Carrie. We appreciate you doing so. We hope you enjoyed it. Cullen, thanks as always. We'll see you next time. Yeah, see ya.